Yo, Jimbo. Uh, this is Jeff. I don't know how you did it, man, but you just released two of your best episodes. I mean, I know it's hard to lose a co-host, but honestly, it is Patrick's loss if he's done. I mean, you've always had great guests. You've got enthusiasm, passion. All your fans will back you up. So what I'm saying is just don't stop, even if your puns are mostly terrible. But look, man, thank you for the two club shows, and I hope you get to interview more actors in the future, more directors, and, hey, musicians, for that matter. So uh, keep it up, and I'll keep listening. All right? Take care, brother. Gosh, this is a special episode of the Pop Culture Club Podcast. My name is Jim Lazkowski. Thank you so much for the voicemail there, Jeff. Um, he is he, I'm pretty sure he's referring to the last two episodes, which would be the uh, David Cronenberg episode and the just-released um, bonus episode I did with Patrick in which we talk about why we rewatch movies and how they grow on us, um, and focused on the master and Joe vs. the volcano. And then, uh, the last 45 minutes, it went in a very interesting direction because as a lot of you know, Patrick has, um, decided to leave director's club, hopefully not permanently, but, uh, you know, if that's the case, that's cool too. We're gonna. He's gonna be missed, as you know. I mentioned on that episode, but you know, we sort of hash things out in a very Mark Marin kind of fashion, and uh, I think I think it went well. Like the response has been very, very interesting, mostly positive. I think listeners responded to the uh, honesty, uh, the the openness, the candor, if you will, of um, of Patrick in particular. So um, I really appreciate everybody's overall positive feedback to that bonus episode and if you haven't heard it you you might want to check it out it sort of reveals a lot about both of us in a way and why we watch so many movies and uh, dedicate ourselves to talking about our passions in life so I'm really proud of that and I'm also very proud of the David Cronenberg episode people really were happy that uh, Directors Club's original format sort of uh, made a comeback there, and you can expect that to happen throughout the summer. But this is, obviously, the Pop Culture Club podcast. And hopefully this will be the first of many, many interviews to come. There will obviously still be discussion episodes revolving around music and film. I have a couple in mind. But ideally, I would like this spinoff show to become more interactive and interview-based. So let's just say that I've lined up um, three more interviews for the future that I could not be more excited about. Um, One of them in particular is going to happen within the next week or so. And, you know, it's with somebody that is really important to me. Um, And it's not of a genre that... 
I think you're expecting that you would expect anyway. So you'll be surprised for that. And I think I think you'll like it. I hope so anyway. And you should <laughs> at least um, at least be interested in the music. So let's go here. <laughs> because this is really exciting. I can't, I can't hardly contain myself right now. Because um, to be able to talk with one of my favorite musicians of all time on this podcast, to me, is a big achievement. In my mind, Matthew Sweet is up there with the likes of a Bob Mould or Paul Westerberg or even Lou Barlow in terms of crafting heart on the sleeve sometimes three-minute pop rock songs that are just chock-full of honesty um, and kindness, in a way. And when I first heard Girlfriend, it was akin to maybe uh, previous generations hearing After the Gold Rush by Neil Young, or something along those lines. Uh, I know most of you may not put Matthew Sweet up there with like some of the greatest artists of all time, but honestly, I do. He is one of the three uh, main influences and inspirations for me becoming a musician. In a way, he helped me to find my own creative outlet, which in turn, I truly feel kind of saved me from having a mental breakdown as a teenager. Um, and so even when this interview that you're about to hear um, began, like we had just, you know, pre-talk, um, we just sensed, I, I think that we were cut from the same cloth, and, like, even when I made a, a ridiculous pun, he, he recognized that he also likes to make ridiculous puns, and, uh, well, sorry, I, I feel the need to justify my sense of humor sometimes, which is kind of silly, but, um, so the more we talked, the more we connected, I think, throughout this interview, and I, I, I really, I mean, it could be projecting a little bit, too, just because I, you know, obviously have a, a personal attachment to this musician's music over the years, particularly the early work. Um, I mean, going from Girlfriend to In Reverse is kind of a trajectory that I wish I had. <laughs> Um, in terms of production and the quality of songwriting and the uh, like the ballads in particular are just like good lord I wish I could write that good um, I've had moments but <laughs> throughout I mean Matthew's been one of the most consistent artists that you'll ever hear and if you're not familiar with his music you totally should go on iTunes and buy it uh, and at the very least go on Spotify and stream it um He's one of the greatest pop songwriters of all time. Um, in my mind, again, kind of as big of an influence on me as someone like John Bryan. So I really hope you get a lot out of this interview. Um, he has a wonderful history with some incredible stories, including a bond with uh, the great Brian Wilson that I think you're going to particularly enjoy. Okay, so I have a tendency to ramble on at the beginning and end of shows, but not this time. Okay. This episode is all about a power pop pioneer. And although I did interview him in person once for my college paper about 15 years ago, to catch up with him and to archive this conversation for the Pop Culture Club podcast is really as good as it gets for me. Um, so to conclude here, if you live in the Chicagoland area... Um, 
Do come out and see him on July 14th at The Space in Evanston. I'll be there, of course. So if you manage to hear this sooner than later, within the summer of 2015, (laughs) uh, before July. So he's playing July 14th at The Space in Evanston. And you can go to matthewsuite.com for all upcoming tour dates and news. Um, He's going to have a new record out maybe within the year. We'll see. That comes up later on in the interview. So without further ado, okay, this is it. Here is my conversation with one of the sweetest guys I've spoken with to date. This is awesome. It's Matthew Sweet. Yes. People know around the same time that I became a movie buff, I had picked up a guitar and started writing songs. And the reason this happened was because my late great dad bought me a guitar, um, and it's simple. I was depressed. I was a teenager, and uh, I was kind of bad at sports. This is me in a nutshell. I swear, one of my legs is the wrong length. And it makes it extra hard for me to do sports. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I haven't had them measured. I haven't had them measured, but I'm convinced. (laughs) So around that time, I got a four-track recorder and found a drummer. And while a lot of musicians at the time wanted to be a part of the grunge movement, I kind of wanted to write heart-on-the-sleeve pop songs. I mean... Obviously, there was Nevermind that kind of got my aggression out, but there was another record that had an even, even bigger impact on my songwriting, which was an album by the name of Girlfriend. Um, and also, besides that, there was this record called Belly Button by the band Jellyfish. It was... Oh, yeah. Both of those, both of those releases at the time were records that both my dad and I sort of bonded over because he raised me essentially on a diet of Pet Sounds and Revolver and Neil Young, Todd Rundgren, ELO. (laughs) Oh, lucky. Yeah. So, I mean, my dad had good taste. And, you know, throughout the years, of course, when I listened to some more angsty stuff, he didn't get it. Um, But when I played him Girlfriend... He lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> that- well, it's so exciting to say all these things about it. You know, it makes it makes it fun. Um, you know, uh, it, it sounds like my own story. You know, the four track and and all those things. It's just that maybe I fully immersed in Brian and Neil Young and all those things when I was 
a little older, you know. It was mm-hmm. I, I had some of the records. The Beatles, of course, I had some records, but I really didn't fully get into that stuff till you know not that long before I was making Girlfriend. Um, and I don't know why I wanted to make it be so dry. I think I just thought, you know, Revolver is the coolest record, and <laughs> I should try to be like that. <laughs> totally but understand. It also just. It fit well. I think it's the more eighties y I tried to dress up my stuff, I don't it didn't I don't think it would have worked the same way. You know, and you can kind of hear that. I mean I'm writing songs and everything, but with girlfriend it really became fully me in an organic way, kind of, because there I wasn't programming anything anymore. Um everything was kind of in place except live drums and the way the record sounded. Yeah, it it sounded like you had found yourself on that record. Like I think, you know, the the ones that came before it were good for what they were, but it almost just it, it just announces itself in a way with that opening track. That's one thing too. I gotta say that you do so incredibly well is uh, is sequencing. <laughs> um, like I think you're really good with like uh, closing out your records with standout ballads like nothing lasts small. you know what i always loved when there was a ballad at the end of a record yeah you know those songs always kind of meant the most to me so i thought i gotta put that you know so when i listen to it i hear it at the end regardless of anybody else yeah and i always felt like um we might i might have mentioned this too when i uh last interview for interviewed you for my college paper when you were touring behind your greatest hits record uh, I felt that Girlfriend almost plays like a concept album about what it's like to be in a relationship. And I think you said it didn't, it wasn't like intentionally uh, constructed that way. It just sort of happened. Uh, and I don't know if like sequencing, you know, is something that you put a lot of, you know, thought into or just afterwards, after all the songs are there, it just makes sense. Um, you know, it's a good question. Uh, I do think it just makes sense. Usually, I have a sense how it ought to be, and I very rarely have had big disagreements with anybody about it. Um, you know, you can move things on records around. Everybody has their own ideas about it, um, but I think I do go very much on feel. You know, records that I love, um, like you know, Revolver or something like that, they have a good variety kind of things, and, and I really liked that, and I felt like if I'm to be a solo artist, I really need to cover all of that different kind of ground, you know, it, or just for me to feel like it was, it was right, I needed to feel like that was all covered, you know, I never, I didn't want to be an artist where everything kind of sounded the same, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of... Um your mo too with each record i think despite the fact that maybe you adopt the you know verse chorus verse pop song uh i think each record is distinctive in its own way i mean cut to a couple years later when i was eagerly awaiting um altered beast which to me at the time was just like whoa this is the dark side (laughs) this is the dark Uh, side of matthew sweet here kind of was for me too you know i was going through difficult times and I didn't really know I was bipolar yet. So for me I was working that out as 
being having a split personality of a monster and a normal person, and that 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 was really because I was in, trying to analyze what's going on with me while I was making that record. It wasn't like I'm a monster and a normal person, and now I will portray that on a record. It was just happening, and these things are just popping out of me, and I was you know weirder and angrier than I'd ever been, and but like you know things I never dreamed of anything so great happening were happening. It was just a very mixed up weird time and I just it was just so much me all the time all of a sudden I just didn't have anywhere to go but to kind of split a little bit you know yeah I could sense that and to me like that's the thing about the majority of your music is that every emotion feels really pure and honest and that's what I've always identified with and that's always what I've tried to uh, capture in my own songs but like I and on the simplest of levels too. When I was really into um, Altered Beast, I one of my favorite movies at the time was uh, Three O'clock High. Oh, you you know I love that, right? <laughs> yeah. And when no. I heard that line in that song, I just like I stood up and applauded in my room by myself. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. Like, that's such an obscure movie. But yeah. I really liked it. The whole thing with Jerry Miller. I love teen movies. As I became an adult, I still like movies about kids in high school. <laughs> Did you see The Perks of Being a Wallflower? You know what? I haven't seen that movie. You should. But I'm sure I will. My wife saw it and told me I'd like it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, she's adorable, that little Emma. Mm. Emma Watson. Is that her name? She's yes. in that, right? Yeah, she's great. Oh, what a doll. <laughs> um... Yeah, uh, three o'clock high, and my one of my very best friends, my friend JP from my childhood, was also obsessed with that movie, and we just we just would watch it a lot, and I watched it a lot over the years, and just got to know it so well, you know. And uh, <clears throat> there were you know a few other movies like that. There were like all the John Hughes movies, which I liked, but generally there were usually was something that kind of bugged me about them a little bit. Sure. But but Fast Times was golden, and, you know, there's all kinds of great lost teen movies that not too many people know about, and Three O'Clock High is definitely one of them. I mean, maybe it's a cult classic now. I guess I don't know. I always felt like you and Cameron Crowe should do a collaboration of some kind. Well, you know, I did meet and hang out with him. I do oh. know Cameron, and he worked with me making a treatment for my altered beast video for the ugly truth oh really and he was there in fact there's a great photo of him with me out in the desert on where we were making that video with my car and it was a real weird situation because i worked on the treatment and cameron went over it with me and kind of helped me on it and then we hired this guy who was supposed to you know film the treatment who was a current you know video director guy at the time and he came on the day of making it and then suddenly like wasn't filming by the script that we'd made for the thing, which is the whole thing he was supposed to do. So I was like slowly freaking out that he wasn't getting any of the things he was supposed to. And he was just kind of becoming uncommunicative and was doing blow. And it was like this yeah. kind of nightmare. And the video, we ended up firing the director. And I just edited it with this girl Liz Friedlander, who was an editor at the time, and she's actually gone on to do 
direct like big TV shows and stuff. It's going to be so awesome when I see her name. But she and I sat in a little room and put together what we could out of the footage that we had after spending, you know, a billion dollars on that day with like, you know, a helicopter and shit to film it. So, uh, so yeah, that was, so Cameron and I did sort of have this thing and it was like this nightmare where we find the guy. I don't know if Cameron really had to do any of that, but, um, I saw him, you know, many times, many times after that. And, and we always, you know, got along really well. He, when he was married to, uh, Nancy Wilson, uh, I think they split up a few years ago, but yeah, when they were so. married, uh, I did some singing with Nancy for incidental music on the soundtrack of Vanilla Sky. And it was groups of people doing these kind of ethereal vocals. And afterwards, she had sort of a classic party on the beach out in Malibu where a bunch of people came and they all sat around playing guitar and singing around, you know, a campfire. And like John, John Bryan was there and all these people. And they were all like so amazing at doing it. And I was just like totally freaked out and kind of like hanging out 30 feet away in the dark. <laughs> but it still was exciting and cool to be around. And you know who's amazing was those girls from Heart. They are amazing. Oh, God, yeah. Amazing guitar player. And and uh, they're really cool people. Yeah, and I gotta say, you've had some incredible co-writing credits and collaborations with many of my uh, songwriting heroes, like Amy Mann and uh, the Counting Crows, Jayhawks, of course, Susanna Hoffs. Um, what have been some of your favorite co-writes and like your proudest moments involving singing backup with other artists? Oh, gosh. Uh, you need to remind me what they are, and I'll go, yeah. <laughs> There's so um, many of them. You know, Amy was an amazing friend to have. I had, I had kind of one of my first good friends in New York City when I moved there, mm. when I got my deal with CBS in 85 or whatever, um, was this songwriter, Jules Shear. And Jules is, you know, an amazing songwriter and also had a lot of people cover his songs. He's kind of... To me, like sort of a Jackson Brown that didn't have the commercial success, hmm. but a really great singer-songwriter with a lot of heart and and good songs. And uh, he was having big success with his songs at that moment because Cyndi Lauper covered, I want to say, two songs of his on that big record of hers, All Through the Night, and there was another one, I can't remember which one. And so Jules, I became friends with Jules and his girlfriend, Pal, who was from a, an L.A. group called um, Slow Children. And she was also a songwriter and a, and a really cool person. And so I became friends with them. And then Jules and Amy started having a relationship. I guess they met at some point during that time and, and really hit it off. And so then I was friends with Jules and Amy and at some point Amy was nominated for an MTV Music Award. And so we all ended up going to the MTV Music Awards in a limo with Amy and um, and uh, Jules and um, I guess probably my then wife Susan at the time. And, and uh, so that to me was like this whole introduction into that whole world of kind of like MTV and record companies and all that. I was very new to it. And, but it was, 
you know, they were nice people that I got along with, and we all kind of liked stuff that was similar, you know, and really melodic stuff. And um, so we were just all kind of friends, and Amy and I went up to uh, the publishing company. We had the same publisher, so we a couple of times wrote up there, and that's where... I don't know if she ever covered any of those, did any of those songs, but we, we wrote our first couple songs together there. And then Jules and I had written together a few times when I first moved to New York, and out of that came that song, Everything's Different Now, which mm. um, which uh, Amy then covered on her record after she broke up with Jules as like sort of a swipe. She covered the song we wrote together, kind of, now everything's different because we broke up. <laughs> um, and I want to say that she covered another one somewhere during that time. Mostly, not too many ever people ever covered songs of mine. Um, but, you know, I've gotten to meet so many of my heroes. You know, I, it, my dream isn't to hear people do my songs, you know. Um, but getting to, you know, meet Lindsey Buckingham and have him play and sing on, you know, once for a movie, he played and sang on a on a cover of Magnet and Steel, which I did yeah. movie or something, and he had produced the original with Walter Egan. <laughs> so it was fun, you know, getting to meet him, and I got to meet Walter, because he would come when I went to Nashville, and he knew we, would, we had covered the song, and Susanna sang on that, too. You know, I already knew her at that time, and just getting to, you know, he came over to the studio, and we smoke weed and like he handed me that classic guitar he plays you know the Turner guitar he plays on all the classic Fleetwood Mac stuff and I got to you know play it while we sat around and it was just like those experiences are really mind-blowing and being around Brian Wilson in any respect because he's just sort of the greatest genius of our time I think and then and then you know getting to know Van Dyke Parks who is another genius person and to even get to have insight into what what those guys had together going on and, and the way they did, they saw eye to eye in sort of a visionary way. Um, you know, I was really lucky in that I, I met Van Dyke and I got him to play on a bunch of stuff I was doing during the times we were making the Thorns record, and that eventually became a record called Living Things that I put out independently. And... During that time, he was such a help to me in my life, Van Dyke. He was so generous and very empathetic of my... I was real wound up about doing the Thorns thing. I felt kind of bamboozled into doing it, and I had weird artistic conflicts about whether I should and and all this stuff. And he really cooled me out and helped me a lot kind of through that time. But also is is a genius musically and has just so much to offer, just culturally so much knowledge, you know, from his his ability to play incredible piano music, you know, that he was like a, you know, a child prodigy, and he would go, his parents had an apartment in New York, and he would go and perform for, like, you know, famous people that were having, like, a salon at his house, you know. <laughs> he was in, like, some movie in the 50s, and he really, he really is an, an interesting cat. And, you know, one time I was... A, at a benefit for, I guess it was the Carl Wilson Foundation at UCLA, mm-hmm. and I got to hang out with, uh, I went outside to smoke, 
uh, to smoke a joint and uh, with Van Dyke and Brian was out there and then I was just standing away from them and Brian and and uh, Van Dyke were just sort of interacting and Brian just kind of came to life and they were like kids and they were doing like the lingo they would say about stuff when they were recording you know kind of like you know it's all happening kind of stuff um, like they used in uh, I have to wonder where Cameron got it because they used it in and almost famous. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's all happened. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> sure that's what it was. They're like, that's what we would always say. Kind of, you know, it was sort of they're like they were sort of sarcastic. You know, when they're saying it, they thought it was kind of funny. Like, oh, we're all so groovy or whatever. You know. Um, so those sorts of insights are priceless moments to me as a person getting a view into the world of these people who are just giants to me. You know, I never met any of the Beatles, you know, um, but I've yes. got to, I got to meet Brian enough that like, you know, one time I was at the urinal at, uh, <laughs> at, uh, what was eventually called cello. It was the original United Western where they recorded, um, pet sounds. And Brian was actually in the pet sounds room recording something. And I was in studio two, which is the one, a little bigger one further down the hall. And, so I'm peeing alone in the bathroom. In comes Brian, up, <laughs> up to the year old next to me. Hey, Matthew, how's it going? I'm like, hey, Brian, good. How are you? Like, I'm doing good. And that was just like so amazing, you know. So then we got him to come in one night and listen to something on in reverse. And this is funny. I'm talking about this because you asked about in reverse, or it says that on the topic. Yeah. And Brian, we played him, I Should Never Have Let You Know. And he, which is completely not worthy of his genius, and he got so excited at the end, he jumped up and he said, I love it. I fucking love it. Oh, and my God. around at Fred Marr and Jim Scott, we're all just like, we were all here and heard this happen, even if it's terrible and it doesn't mean anything. He said it, and it was so amazing, you know. So, you know, it was after that I got to meet him a few more times because of the thing in New York, and I got to know his backing band on those Pet Sounds things pretty well, and Jeff Foskett, who was kind of his right-hand guy for a long time, and they were all super nice to me. And Brian's daughters, you know, when I flew for the first time in many, many years, were were there and just so nice to me, and and his wife was really nice to me, so they were... You know, they're a real family for me when I was really freaked out having to travel and do some stuff at the time I was around them. That is just incredible. That's like the ultimate moment of validation to have Brian Wilson say. Well, you know, it isn't, though, because I know it's not anything like his least, the least from him, you know. But it was exciting to to see this person and know he was real. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know, right? It's just kind of that I got to get near him. You know, when I started out, even though it was, I was buying records and it was only the, a little after the middle of the 70s and towards the 80s starting, and it seemed like rock and roll was a million years old. Those, those people from the 60s and the groups like The Who and all that stuff, it was like it was this ingrained ancient history that I was also already. I was just so late in that timeline, you know. 
And yet now, when I look back, I realize it was just so soon after that time of the 60s, and yet so, so much had happened record-wise. It didn't feel like it had been, but it really was very soon. And so, amazingly, I did get to overlap with, you know, these power-pop groups that I love. I got to meet Eric Carmen and the Raspberries, you know, and they're just, like, mind-blowingly great, yeah. you know? <laughs> so that stuff is really amazing. You know, I'm not a person who really likes to go and try and hang out backstage and meet everybody and network all the time, you know, but Same. so it was really lucky for me, I think, that I got in situations where I got to meet some of those people and and uh, just get the feeling of them, you know, because they're all just people deep down and we all have our weirdnesses, you know. Um, you know, in reverse just seems fitting to talk about a little bit because there has been more talk about Brian because of the release of his, uh, you know, the, the biopic, Love and Mercy, which I think is yeah, very good. Um, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I thought it looked great. Yeah, it is. And I'm just, I'm curious, too, because, you know, around that time, it was almost like the flip side, uh, the complete antithesis to something like Blue Sky and Mars, which is more of like a stripped down, new wave kind of a looser record with you know uh, shorter songs and whatnot so you kind of just went all out in the studio with the like wall of sound approach and decided to sort of embrace your inner wilson with that record i'm curious where you were at this period in your career what made you decide that this was the kind of record you wanted to make well you know it's funny i think of the genesis of the way we built it in the sound um, came not just from Brian, being a fan of Brian's, but at that point I was getting more into listening to what all the Spectre records were yeah. and getting big compilations of him and just kind of uh, getting my head around what the wall of sound kind of was. Mm-hmm. So it was really as much going after that as going after Brian. I, but I think Brian was going after that. I mean, we know he was a huge Spectre fan. But my thinking at the time was more toward, um, you know, uh, more toward thinking about the Spectre thing because I was technically thinking about, okay, two or three pianos, two or three guitar players, you know, we'll get them all in a room and it will make a sound that is different, you know, somehow. And um, uh, so I did some demos and on those I would just, play everything several times <laughs> and maybe have the drummer play multiple times and mix them together, you know, and it was making that sound. And, but my life with labels was complex at the time because the label had been sold to Jive Records, which at the time was having their success with Britney Spears okay. and the boys. And these guys who managed uh, Metallica uh, Peter and Cliff I'm forgetting their last names <clears throat> off the top of my head it'd be easy to find out they were put in charge of the catalog from Zoo or Volcano I guess it was before they bought it and so they we wanted to just leave and go to another label and we kept trying to go won't you just let us buy it out and leave but they wouldn't agree to do that. They wanted me to make a record. 
So after a year or two, we finally were like, okay, fine, we'll make the record. And Peter and Cliff were very nice to me, and however, they kind of were pushing for me to do really work with producers. And you know, it was at a time when you know I really wasn't ready to go. Oh, I'll just do a record with some producer, and it'll be whatever it's like because I'm doing it with them. You know, I was more in control still than that. Um, so. Uh, they came and said, okay, you're going to make a record. What do you want to do? And at first I said, well, see if you can get Jeff Lynn to produce a record. Because this is the kind of thing they wanted. They wanted me to, like, have Paul McCartney produce my record or Jeff Lynn. You know? And even though that wasn't necessarily what I wanted, I thought, well, that would be amazing because of these people are amazing. I'll learn from them. And it, how can it not be great? Right? Right. But McCartney wasn't producing any records. Jeff Lynn wasn't producing any records or didn't want to produce mine anyway. And they did go to these people and try to get them. So then they set me up with this guy, uh, Danny Korch, Korchmar. What is this? God, I'm getting his name wrong. He's, he's a guy who produced and played guitar on a million records with people like James Taylor and Jackson Brown, like real... 70s songwriter people um, and he was really cool and I liked him but the kind of thing and how he wanted me to do it just wasn't kind of what I wanted to do at the time so I said no I don't want to do that and and the way we ended up recording in reverse is how we got them to let me make the record is I said okay I'm going to get this super group of guys I know Mar is a great Pro Tools guy, and I've worked with him on Girlfriends, so that's a cool thing. Scott mm -hmm. is just my favorite engineer guy who I love, and he can be the engineer. And then, you know, Greg Leese is the greatest musical genius I know that's a friend of mine, so he can be, you know, quote-unquote musical director, and then all three of them can get production credit, and, I'll, and I'm doing this sort of triple threat production or whatever, you know, and they went, okay, we'll let you do this. <laughs> but really, I think the record I made was not remotely commercial in a way that they wished for. And the real reason they were there was to A&R Tool anyway. I mean, that's why they were brought in to run that label because Tool was on the label and they were really the valuable thing for Jive to be buying, trying to get into rock. So... You know, it was frustrating because then once we released the record, it actually had a little bit of action. And, for instance, I remember one of the things that really was the worst point in it was we got asked to do a Conan show. And I was good friends with Conan, and, and they were happy to promote um, that record. And then Peter and Cliff wouldn't approve the funds to fly my band to go be on Conan. Oh, man. This really sucked. That's when we really knew, God, the industry is fucking changing for sure. <laughs> you know, it's like when it's not worth it to spend a couple grand to fly a band to be on television, you know. That's messed up. It, that's just so weird. I thought it was really weird. So that was just like really bummed me out. And after that, really everything was much more indie, you know, and that, that was fine with me, but it just was like, you know, bouncing around trying to figure out how to make money and make records and who I was and 
you know, the era changed and suddenly everything was Limp Biscuit and, <laughs> you know, that kind of era, which was just so weird and yeah. interpretable to kind of understand what it was about a little bit, you know, even though I'm sure there's things that are really cool or whatever, um, you know, it was just a time that changed very quickly. And, you know, as I know now, looking back at music history, everything changed really quickly, always for everybody. You know? <laughs> but like, you just don't understand that when it's your time until it's kind of happened, you know? So I really feel very lucky that I had multiple records that, that did well, you know, that I had two albums that actually had singles that made them sell a million copies, you know? Because now that's just kind of inconceivable to most artists, even if you're in the top ten or something, you know. Yeah, and with and in the earlier days, you had you know uh, just MTV helping out and college radio. I mean, you know, and those things made a big difference because yeah. we didn't have the internet. Those were the way people found out about stuff. You know, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm to this day. I'm still grateful for 120 minutes and Alternative Nation for introducing me to so many bands. And it was so exciting. It was exciting for everyone, the people working at the label. You know, I was never an artist that went around, like, hating my label. It, and it is your inclination to do that because you just feel like your artistic vision is always in danger. <laughs> but I also recognized they worked really hard, and they were as excited as I was if we got something good to happen or if we got good news, you know? And so... I love those people that worked at Zoo. You know, recently the guy who was the president there um, passed away at a pretty young age. He's only 72, this guy Lou Malia. And he was a classic old record company guy, came from a promo background. He broke U2 for Island Records. Oh, and wow. BMG gave him $60 million to start his own label. And that's how we got Girlfriend picked up for whatever they paid for it, which was literally like $5,000 or something. <laughs> so, uh, but he took me in and was so great to me and made me feel like I was important, you know, and that was an incredible experience. I think I was pretty lucky to have a little more indie treatment then, but I also, in my prime, never really got to be on a label that had the muscle to break something wider, you know? We just didn't have the money, and at that time the money was really important. There was just a super lot of corruption. Everybody was bummed out. All the artists were bummed out, and everyone just complained about labels, and I understand that we all felt that. But there was a point to which I just sort of felt like, look, my favorite thing and the most important thing is doing music. Right. This just makes that easier for me, even if it's harder to make money. It's a good time for music, and I got really tired of hearing the rap, hearing myself tell the rap on how bad the industry had become. I just didn't want to, you know, it was just like ruining everything, you know, so, and for me, it was great when we could start just putting out more of our own records, or at least things that were really indie and didn't have too many fingers in the pie, you know? Yeah, I mean, everything's, everything's changed, and it, it sounds to me, um, you know, more recently, like you've kind of gone back to your roots with recording a a little with Sunshine Lies and Modern Art. They seem a little bit more casual and kind of homegrown and kind of unassumingly 
sweet but still you know obviously melodically strong are you mostly just recording out of your home and sort of embracing how technology has made it very easy for musicians to not have to venture out to big studios now yes i mean studios were really cool and it was almost a lifestyle because the labels if you didn't spend a lot of money they weren't making what they felt was an important record Mm -hmm. so you know but the flip side was they expected something that they felt was commercial, which was impossible for them to explain to you. And for me as an artist, I couldn't just go, oh, here's what you want for the radio. I just, nothing would come out if I thought about that. Um, But, uh, so for me, for my soul and for my enjoyment as a musician, these times are better. But it's also got a it's also got a feeling of being without a tightrope or you're on a tightrope without a net you know you're a little bit kind of like um trying to make your way out in the world but you know it's always been that way for older artists it was just easier for you to still put out records that got promoted a little more back then than i think it is now but on the other hand there's so much more of a grassroots thing now and that's really cool it's cool that it's specialized because when people come to our shows it's exciting because they all really want to be there. It's very special, you know? Oh, they, they make that extra effort, and it makes a huge difference for... I mean, your, your true fans are always going to be loyal and dedicated, and they're going to come out to your shows no matter what, you know? And you can sense that when you're playing. Like, I've, I've seen so many shows of yours at this point. It's like, yeah. And yeah. you get, like, I think it's it, it helps when you ha- live in a town like Chicago with so many dedicated music fans who will just stick by you and say, you know what? I love this guy since girlfriend, and he's still coming out and playing shows, so that's why I'm here, you know? Uh, but that's awesome, and it's awesome for me, too. When I was growing up, Chicago was the nearest big city. It was like New York to us, you know? Yeah. The first place I went with my family where it was like a mind-blowing giant city, you know? Um, And uh, so it's always been really special to me, and we got incredible radio there back in the day and incredible support from fans, and that's made it always just this wonderful, sweet spot for me. And it really doesn't matter to me how many people come there because the people that do are always great. And we generally do really well... uh, there anyway and with these new venues you know places like city winery which are great for artists my age get our audience in and and then there's space which is like a perfect size cool club you know um we had a a great we just played there for the first time and people have been telling us about it forever (laughs) and those spaces help a lot when there's a good place to play and that people like to go to it's great for all of us you know yeah, um, so as we uh, sort of wrap things up here, I'm just curious, obviously. Um, well, first of all, I mean, congrats last year, too, for your Kickstarter campaign. It was a great success. Um, any updates uh, and progress on the new record? Uh, can we expect it later this year? Are we going to hear any new songs at the uh, Chicago show at all? Or You won't hear new songs at the show because I just am not... <laughs> I haven't, you know... I'm just not that far along to feel like revealing things. And plus, we don't, we're don't. we just doing this short run, so we don't really have time to do new rehearsals or anything. Right. But I do plan to play more of it than I've been playing of recent records. And I think that's going to be a little easier to do because 
my sense of it is it's a little simpler, more grassroots kind of album that it's going to be. I've finished about seven songs that have all my vocals on them, which is, you know, really usually the hardest part. So anything else is just little overdubs and things. Um, I have another eight songs that I have the backing tracks for and are in progress. And I'm going to try to get through those. You know, probably I'll get through all this stuff by maybe the end of July. And then my hope is to record one more batch of basic tracks of a few more new songs. And I think between those kind of 25 songs, I'll be able to pull what I think is a really good album. And it's, you know, it will be a wide range of things, but I'm really trying to make sure it's healthy and strong, kind of. I have, I have a good sense of how I want it to seem and feel, and, and I know when I hear it, kind of when I'm making it, I go, that's the right way. And so I'm just kind of one by one trying to get to that point and, and keep them coming and, and uh, make sure it's just a, a, a very balanced record in that it has a wide variety of things that I feel are really strong. And that was for me to do always. It was hard for me to do in Altered Beats because I didn't have time. You know, I just, it was just, I was writing it right then. And it was hard to do, you know, later on because it, it was the weird pressure from kind of the industry and the label and I'm supposed to have commercial success and, you know, <laughs> all those things. But now it's, I feel really good about it. So on that sense of the Kickstarter, I think is really good because it makes me slightly more kicked in the ass in terms of I really want to make sure people dig it. And the way, only way I really know to do that is make sure I really dig it, which means I'm going to work extra hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, I'll take your time. That now take your time. We're 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 patient. <laughs> we're, we're we're eagerly awaiting it, but we're also very patient. And I we have and I, no doubt you're going to put out something great again. Oh well, that's that's nice of you. But this, I just because I promised it would be so good, I'm extra like dedicated to like <laughs> it. Just has to be really good. If I don't think it's great, I just keep writing a few more songs till I do. You know. Yeah. Well, I'm. I gotta say, like. Uh, even like even your two minute ballads just always give me goosebumps, man. Like uh, life without you, or I almost forgot. Like that, there's a line that I almost forgot. Whenever you win, you know I'm wishing you'd lose, so you know that I love you. To this day, if I just listen to that song, I just I'm <laughs> so moved by it. It's incredible. Oh, that's nice. Well, I always cared the very most about songs that had a turn in them. Yeah, some words and a melody that just felt sad or unresolved or that kind of thing to me was music that really meant a lot to me which is why you know when I discovered Big Star and like when I was a senior in high school those last couple months I was deeply into uh, Big Star Third which is a record that's so wallowing in this kind of almost existential sort of place of longing and horror and everything you know and uh so that to think that anything I did communicated that across, that's what real music does in my mind. You know, there are other kinds of music where it's just super good, but it just doesn't have that thing. And when people have that thing, that's when I am a big fan of theirs. Or when they make me feel the thing, you know. You have that thing, man. I, I've, I've felt that way from... Maybe for you I do, at least. And that's all that matters, you know. 
when it's a musician and someone who likes music, you know, it's a very personal thing. And the world has become a lot more integrated and less personal in a sense that there's much more of a communal vibe about everything. Um, but music, I think, will remain a thing that can be something that really brings you something in private when you're just on your own, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, I can't thank you enough for your talents and for being on the Pop Culture Club podcast. I, I really look forward to seeing you on uh, July 14th here in Chicago. It's my pleasure, and, and I look forward to seeing you too. You would never turn around You're laughing at everything It's bringing me down Did you say you loved me? I almost forgot I almost forgot That I will never be free I'll always be some Stuck inside of me Did you say God.